Preparation is crucial to success. You guys already know this. You guys have dedicated four years of your life going to class, listening to lectures, doing homework, taking tests to prepare for your career. On a more micro scale, you guys know how important it is to prepare for a midterm or a final. You read the textbook, you go over the lecture notes, you podcast the lecture, especially if you skipped it. You do what you need to do to prepare for that exam. And preparation can be the difference between an A or a C. Preparation is the difference between giving an oral presentation and it going smoothly and it being a total train wreck. If you want to be good at any sport, let's say basketball, the greatest game ever invented. If you want to be good at basketball, you got to prepare. You don't just step onto the court and start playing. You have to practice your dribbling, practice your shooting, practice your passing, run some drills. If you want to be really good, you got to go to the gym and exercise, run on the treadmill, lift some weights. You got to be mentally prepared as well. And that preparation is going to be how you're going to defeat the other team. Unless the other team has Steven Smith. In which case, it's still your best bet. Try to defeat him by preparing. Simply put, preparation is how you do what you do the best. If you want to be excellent, if you want to do something well, then preparation is crucial. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about preparing for evangelism. Uh, We want our evangelism to be effective to be clear, to be the most God-honoring it can possibly be. And like with anything else, preparation is crucial. Last week, we started a new series on evangelism, sharing, proclaiming, preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that those who place their faith in Christ can be forgiven of all of their sins. We talked about sharing this message with friends, with family members, with classmates, with anyone and everyone who will listen to us, who will receive this this message, this great news that there is hope, that there is a Savior. His name is Jesus, and he came to earth to die on a cross as a substitute for sinners to save sinners so that those who place their faith in him will be saved, saved from the wrath of God, saved from eternity in hell, and saved to a life of worshiping Jesus Christ, the most joyful life one could have, and saved to an eternity of spending time with Jesus Christ. This is a big message. Now, this is an important message. This is not one that you just jump into. This is one that you have to prepare for. And what we're going to do today is talk about the best way to prepare for evangelism. And that is through prayer. 
we're going to talk about the, rela- the relationship between prayer and evangelism. And I think a lot of times we don't evangelize because we leave God out of it. Because we think that evangelism is just something we do on our own, right? I, I got to be the one to muster up enough courage to go out and share the gospel. I got to be the one to get off the couch. I got to be the one to say the right words. I got to be the one to answer that person's questions. And we often think that it's all about us, that evangelism lives and dies on us. It all depends on me. And if that's the case, if whether someone enters the kingdom of God or not depends solely on you and how eloquent you are and how convincing you are in your gospel presentation, yeah, that's pretty discouraging. Then yeah, that's, that's a, pretty much a downer when it comes to motivation for evangelism. But what if God is on your side? What if the almighty God will help you? What if the one who delivered the sons of Israel from slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm will be there right beside you as you evangelize? Well, that makes a difference. What we'll find out today is that God is on our side. He provides opportunities for evangelism. He helps us speak clearly and boldly. He sends more laborers into the field, and he is the one who ultimately saves sinners if we're faithful to pray. Prayer is the preparation for evangelism. Evangelism begins on our knees. Great commission that we looked at last week. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. But before you go out and make disciples, stay home. Get on your knees and beg God that he will save some. So let's talk about prayer and evangelism today. What should we pray for in preparation for evangelism? Five things, five prayer requests in preparation for evangelism. The first prayer request that we can lift up to God is for opportunities. Opportunities. Turn over to Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. And we'll be in this text for the first two prayer requests. Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. The Apostle Paul writes toward the end of his letter, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. First of all, in verse 2, we see Paul command the Colossian believers to continue steadfastly 
in prayer. Pray consistently, persistently, frequently, regularly. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't be hit or miss when it comes to your prayer life. Devote yourselves to prayer, as your Bible may say. Storm the gates of heaven. Rush forward to the throne room of God and linger at his feet, communing with him, talking to him, bringing your requests to him. Paul goes on to say in verse 2, being watchful in it. Stay awake. Be alert. Be active. Be attentive. Be all there in prayer, which is what the disciples failed to do in the Garden of Gethsemane when their eyelids got heavy and they fell asleep. Be watchful with thanksgiving. Don't forget to express thanks to God in prayers. And then verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. The Apostle Paul's got a prayer request. That God may open to us a door for the word. He wanted the Colossian believers to pray that he would have more opportunities to speak forth the truth of the gospel. He prayed for a door an opening, a means of access to speak forth the word. Paul wanted more opportunities for the gospel. And so he knew that his role was to recruit other Christians to pray for him, to petition God, because God was the only one who could create opportunities for preaching the gospel. God was the only one who could open the door. God is the sovereign one who orchestrates all things and all peoples in a manner where we can share the gospel with them. And so Paul asked that they would pray that God would unlock some doors and swing it wide open so that he could have access in proclaiming the gospel. This is how we prepare to evangelize. This is the preparation that we ask God for people to actually share the gospel with. Pray that we as a ministry will have more opportunities to share the gospel. That will get all kinds of different visitors come on a Friday night to Grace on Campus. That people would find us through the website, through the Facebook page, that they would sign up for a ride to church and hear the gospel preached there. Pray that many people will be hungry this coming Friday for a cheap hot dog, 25 cents, so that we can share the gospel with them there, invite them out to Grace on Campus there. Pray for open doors in your personal evangelism too. Pray for new relationships. Have you ever prayed for that, that God would give you a new friend, a new relationship, a new person where you can shake their hand, introduce yourself, meet them, and a friendship where you would have an opportunity to talk about Christ and share your faith. Now pray for your old relationships as well, existing relationships, that you wouldn't just be talking about the same old thing, but that you would be alert and that God would do something in that conversation and, and you're aware that that's, that's your door. That's your opportunity. 
So pray for opportunities, but don't stop there. You pray for open doors, but also pray that God will help you to actually walk through the door. Secondly, pray for clarity. Pray that when you walk through the door, you will preach the gospel clearly. Verse 4, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. The opportunity doesn't do you much good unless you open up your mouth and speak forth the gospel clearly. Paul's second prayer request is that he and his missionary team would evangelize in a way that is clear. That is, that they would communicate the gospel in a way that is understandable. That they would share the entirety of the gospel and not leave any parts out. Why is this so important? Because we know the gospel is the word of truth that leads to salvation. Ephesians 1.13. Because the gospel leads to hope laid up for you in heaven. Colossians 1.5. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So if we can just present the gospel clearly, if people will just understand and grasp the gospel, then we know that they have the message that saves. It is by this message that God unleashes his supernatural power to turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, to give new life, and to wash filthy sinners clean. So, we better get the gospel right. We better get the message right, and we better pray that God would help us to get it right and to make it clear. Let's pray for clarity. Let's pray for crystal clarity, so that when people walk away from our evangelism, there will be no doubt in their mind who Jesus is, what he did on the cross, and what they must do to find salvation in him. The third prayer request in preparation for evangelism, pray for opportunities, pray for clarity. Third, pray for courage. Ephesians 6 18 to 20. Let's turn there. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. And let's see how Paul requested, once again, prayer, this time for courage in evangelism. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." Notice that Paul uses the word boldly twice. Verse 19, pray that I will open my mouth boldly. Verse 20, that I may declare it boldly. Paul asks for courage. 
Pray that I won't hold back. Pray that I'll stand on my two feet firmly planted and that I'll open my mouth with courage to tell people the gospel. Pray that God will be holding me the whole time, that he will be holding my feet fast so that I stand. And that I'll open my mouth and proclaim the gospel passionately, courageously, and brokenheartedly. The Apostle Paul asks for boldness. And that's weird. Because Paul's pretty bold in his evangelism. I think you can make the argument that Paul is one of the greatest and most courageous evangelists to ever live. Jesus gets the gold medal, and the Apostle Paul and John the Baptist are probably duking it out for the silver medal. But yet he asks for boldness. This guy who's currently in chains, in prison, Because he's too bold for the gospel, at least for the local government's liking, and so they're trying to slow him down a little bit. This one who said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, asks that he would be bold. Here's the point, guys. There's not a Christian on the planet who doesn't at times feel timid in sharing the gospel. Uh, There's not a Christian on the planet that doesn't sometimes hesitate to walk through the door that God provides. Second guesses themselves, second guesses the power of the gospel and backs off. And so we need to pray for ourselves and for each other for courage. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, up until last Friday, I had you guys take a survey in evangelism, and I just want to share a little bit of the results just from one of the questions. Everything's anonymous, don't worry. Uh, I asked you guys to fill in the blank. The greatest hindrance to my personal evangelism is, and then I listed out some potential, I listed out six potential uh, hindrances to your personal evangelism and also gave you the option of other. And some of you guys wrote in your own answer. But let me share the top two answers, which, which I provided. But you guys answered. 27% of you said, I'm scared of the way others will view me. And The second most common answer, 17%, said, I'm scared I will be asked a question I don't know the answer to. So the top two answers to the greatest hindrance to you sharing the gospel have to do with fear. Here's the good news. You don't have to muster up this courage on your own. Uh, It's not about psyching yourself up to get out there and evangelize. It's not about changing your personality. It's about God. It's about his strength. And it's about prayer 
asking him to help us have the boldness, have the courage to speak forth the truth of the gospel. This fear of man is, is not going away on its own. It's not going to go away when you get older. Uh, it's not going to go away when you become a more mature Christian. It's not going to go away when you feel like you know the gospel better. It's always going to be scary to share the gospel because we saw that even the Apostle Paul asked for more boldness. This fear of man in evangelism can only be shrunk, can only be minimized, and by God's grace can only be eradicated through prayer, through the power of God. On Monday, I'm going fishing with Georgie, and I'm scared. I haven't done cold contact evangelism in a long time, and... I'm scared of how to start that conversation. I hope Georgie starts it. <laughs> uh, I'm scared that I'm going to get asked a question that I don't know the answer to. Uh, I'm scared that Georgie's going to look at me and be like, this is how the shepherd shares the gospel? Like, you expected better than this. Uh, I'm scared of all, all kinds of things here. Um, and, and I bet I'm going to be tempted sometime this weekend, to text Georgie and cancel. Come on, man, my, my wife's pregnant. I got two kids. Stepped on a Lego again. I'm crippled. Can't go. <laughs> and so I have lots of fear. And I, I, I ask you guys to, to please pray for me uh, as I go out on Monday. Uh, we all have fears. Uh, we all struggle with the, the fear of man. But praise God there is a solution, and we have God with us. Let's pray uh, that we will have this boldness, that he would infuse this courage into us. Number four, fourth prayer request. Pray for laborers. Pray for laborers. For more evangelists, let's look over at Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, verses 1 to 2. So a lot of, Christ, uh, a lot of non-Christians in the world. And you can't share the gospel with all of them. You need other laborers. Lots of them. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. Verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's just talk UCLA. 45,000 souls 
enrolled at UCLA. And how many of them love Jesus? And how many of them don't know Jesus? Are confused about what they believe and what their worldview is? And are unsure where they're going to spend eternity? 45,000 students. That's enough to fill 15 worship centers at Grace Church. Enough to fill Pauly Pavilion three and a half times. And I'm amazed by these statistics I was reading. The freshman class, the incoming freshman class, next fall, this coming fall, 113,000 applications, most out of any university, and only 14,000 admitted. But of course, UCLA is admitting as many as they can. People are dying to get into this school. This campus is maxed out. The dorms that you guys live in are maxed out, 100% occupancy. You guys paying an arm and a leg for the apartment that you live in because they're in such high demand. The harvest is plentiful. The stream that you live near is full of fish. You think of all these students, 45,000 of them. How many of them are Christians? And then out of that group of Christians, how many of them are evangelizing? The laborers are few. That is a humbling thought that I had as I was preparing this, uh, that GOC can't reach UCLA for Christ. We can't. Can't reach all 45,000. Uh, even if you all went out fishing, uh, even if you tried to make some new friends, you're still not going to know everyone. And even trying to fish to every person would be impossible. So, even though we have a very sizable army in here, we can't reach this campus for Christ on our own. But we can pray for more laborers. We can pray for Christians in other campus groups, for Christians in churches around this area. Pray for anyone who will preach the gospel clearly and accurately. Pray for more laborers to reach these students And pray these first three prayer requests for them, that they would have opportunities, that they would proclaim the gospel clearly, and that they would be bold. Yes, pray for GOC and GOCers. Yes, pray for people in your small groups, but also pray for other Christians on our campus, Christians that you may not even know, that they too will be faithful to evangelize, that they will be faithful laborers in this very plentiful harvest so that we can reach this campus, this campus that we love so much. So, how do you pray for evangelism? Pray for opportunities, clarity, boldness, laborers, and fifth, 
salvation. Pray for the impossible. Pray for what only God can do. Pray for what you have no control over, but what God has complete control over. Pray for what you are completely weak to do, but what he is mighty to do, he is mighty to save. Jonah 2.9, from the belly of the fish, Jonah realizes salvation belongs to the Lord. If this is God's work, then we should ask him to do it. Romans 10.1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. My heart's desire and prayer. I like how it's mingled. My heart's desire mingled with prayer. Paul prayed for his fellow countrymen's salvation because he loved them, because he cared for them, because they were in his heart. And the thought of them being accursed and going to hell was unbearable for him, so much to the point that he says, I'll be accursed for them and I'll go to hell for them. You guys love non-Christians? Do you have at least one or two that are at the very center of your heart, people that you, you care about, the people that it just burdens you to think about their eternal condemnation, the ones that you've invested in and they've invested in you? If you love them, if your heart's desire is for their salvation, then pray for them, plead with God that he would save them. Yes, pray for opportunities. Yes, pray for clarity. Yes, pray for boldness. Yes, pray for more evangelists. But pray that God will simply, directly, and decisively save sinners. That he'll open their eyes, soften their hearts, renew their lives, and that his spirit would convict them of sin, drive them to the Savior. George Mueller, an evangelist and a missionary known specifically for starting a lot of orphanages in England, began praying for five of his non-Christian friends. After several months of praying, one of them came to the Lord. Ten years later, two others were converted. And then it took 25 years before the fourth man was saved, Mueller persevered in prayer until his death for the fifth friend, and throughout those 52 years, he never gave up, uh, hoping so bad that this last friend would accept Christ. And after 52 years of faithful praying, Mueller never saw the fifth guy give his life to Christ because George Mueller passed away, and this friend was saved after Mueller's funeral. This is the power of prayer. To a God who is mighty to save. I don't know what you guys pray for. I'm sure you pray for a lot of things. God help me do well on this midterm. Remember the stuff that I studied and somehow miraculously remember stuff that I didn't study. Uh, God bless my family. Bless my friends. Help me to love these people better. But hey, of all the things that we pray for, guys, 
Should we not pray for the salvation of the lost? Eternal destinies hang in the balance. Should we not pray for these souls? This is the preparation for evangelism. It's done on our knees. This is how we prepare. Adil Moody, often called the greatest evangelist of the 19th century, said this, I must first speak to God about lost people. Then I may talk to lost people about God. i read that one more time. I must first speak to God about lost people. Then I may talk to lost people about God. Will God ever bring revival to the University of California, Los Angeles? I hope so. And I don't want to throw that word revival out loosely. Uh, let me define it for you. found this definition. Uh, the definition of revival is an unusual outpouring of the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, convicting non-believers of sin and drawing them to saving faith, often in great numbers, and imparting new vigor, boldness, and power to those who are already of the number of God's people. So there's two sides here. A lot of times when we think of revival, we think of the mass conversion, right? Lots and lots of people giving their life to Christ. People throwing themselves up to the pulpit. What must I do to be saved? And that is one part of revival. But the second part is that the Christians get more bold. The Christians get more excited about devotion to the Lord, following him, and preaching his gospel. So this kind of revival has been rare throughout history, but it's definitely happened. And I also want to say that God is the only one who can make it happen. He is sovereign over all. Revivals happen according to the sovereign timing and plan of God, and there's nothing we can do to force his hand. So that being said, I, I read this book called When God Walked on Campus. Subtitle, A Brief History of Evangelical Awakenings at, uh, at American Colleges and Universities. So this is simply a catalog of the few revivals, true revivals, mass conversion and Christians getting excited about the Christian life that have happened on college campuses. And it's a rare thing, but it has happened. In the 1900s, there were a few revivals, some big and some small. Uh, there was some happening on the campus of the University of Florida, the University of Michigan, Yale, MIT, Wheaton College in Illinois, Asbury University in Kentucky, and a little one at UCLA in 1951. Bill Bright founded Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as CRU. And CRU 
saw 150 professions of faith in the first semester that they were on campus. Within just a few months, the Bible study was about 250 students, including the student body president, the editor of the campus newspaper, and some top athletes like Rayford Johnston, uh, the world decathlon champion. And after surveying these revivals on college campuses, including the little one that happened on ours, uh, the author of this book observes six marks, six common threads in all of these revivals that happened on college campuses, and he lists them in his final chapter. I want to give them to you. These were common marks that were seen in, in all these revivals on campus. So uh, the first one, the first four I'm going to breeze through real quickly, and then the, the last year I'm going to read a little bit for you because I think they're more pertinent. Uh, the first one is conviction and confession. No surprise there, right? Deep and widespread conviction of sin and as a result, a confession to God asking for forgiveness. Secondly, biblical priorities. And the author talks about the preaching of God, God's word, uh, teaching it and studying it in various settings. Third is ministry and missions. During these revivals on campuses, Many were called to full-time pastoral ministry and called to be missionaries. Fourth was cross-denominational focus, cross-denominational focus. Uh, these students didn't let denominational differences stop them from linking arms for the gospel. And a little excerpt here. In the Campus Awakenings, we have surveyed the primary emphasis has been given not to denominal distinctives, important though these might be in their own right, but to Christ, Scripture, prayer, outreach, and missions. Okay, so the fifth mark, which I found very interesting and very pertinent for you guys. He calls it student-directed. Student-directed. He writes, collegiate ministry is strongest when students are empowered to be the fundamental leaders of their respective groups or ministries. This is not to suggest that Christian faculty, administrators, pastors, evangelists, chaplains, or other related staff are not integral to the vital and growing student movement. Quite the contrary. Mature non-student leaders such as Dwight L. Moody, Luther D. Wishard, and J. Edwin Orr, to only name three, were indeed integral to the collegiate awakenings of their day. The roles they played among student leadership, however, were primarily to assist in the advancement of a strong word-centered ministry through teaching, evangelizing, encouraging, and equipping for service, rather than to domineer or inappropriately control. In 1815, for example, it was the students who initiated and led concerts of prayer at Brown, Yale, and Middlebury. Williams College, about a decade later, boarded a freshman by the name of Samuel J. Mills, who, along with various peers, was burdened by God to organize the first foreign missionary society in America. One might recall the story of the three students praying at Hamden Sydney College, who, when confronted with insults for their 
from their unbelieving peers chose instead to heed the encouragement of their college president and continue their discipline of prayer. Their small group was soon joined by half the student body and finally by the presence of the spirit of the revival who caused an awakening that swept campus and community alike. So these revivals were always driven by students. And then the last mark, the sixth and final mark that the author says characterized these campus revivals. And it's actually the first one that he lists. Prayer. The author writes, when God desires to bring about an awakening, he calls his people to prayer. Such was the case at Brown University early in the 19th century when the Spirit, prior to visiting that particular campus with an awakening, prompted three students to form a college praying society. Coinciding with various awakenings at Yale, Williams, Harvard, and Middlebury Colleges, Christ likewise called groups of students to host concerts of prayer. There is a similar pattern in 20th century awakenings. When the spirit of revival descended on Eastern Nazarene College in 1930, for example, classrooms were turned into prayer rooms. Mealtimes found the dining hall of this institution nearly empty as students devoted themselves instead to prayer and fasting. Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. 